Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. And now, here's a double shot from our featured artists today, Jim Patton and Sherry Brokus. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs. Don't send me letters. Don't call on the phone. Don't knock on my door. There's nobody home. Don't ask how I'm doing. Just leave me alone. We're over and done with. My heart's turned to stone. Don't tell me you're sorry. Don't try to explain. Don't talk to our friends. They know who's to blame. Cause you went too far this time, didn't you? Now everyone knows We're over and done with My heart's turned to stone I won't talk about you I won't mention your name I'll forget that I knew you If you just go away Wounds don't heal I don't care at all About the way that you feel We once were close friends It's true Long, long ago Now we're over and done with My heart's turned to stone We're over and done with My 
hearts turned to stone from their brand new release and we got jim and sherry on the line right now hey guys how you doing hi hello good to see you hear you excuse me (laughs) hello it's good to be here (laughs) it's good to have you guys on again now you've been on the show before but we always start things off by giving our fans the opportunity to get to know who you are both as artists and as people uh, and the best way to do that is through your journey, how you got to where you are today. So give us the story of Jim Patton and of Sherry Brokus. I think I have about 14 albums about that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, well, we started, I was playing um, a bar in Arnold, Maryland, and there's a song about that. And Sherry came up and asked if she could sing, and we had rules that said no um, 
no one else it's no stranger could sit in because if somebody comes in when when you're playing you don't know if they're really good they could mess up your show if they're really bad they can really mess up your show so we always had to know the people but i thought sherry was good looking and so i said sure we can play anything and she came up and uh, we've been singing together ever since 40 some years so um, okay that's, well. that's our beginning we were in a band called edge city and um, Lloyd Maines produced one of our albums, um, and we um, and then in t- about 2008 we moved into the acoustic world for the next six albums. Yeah. I guess um, where we've been doing more folky stuff. It's, it's still the same songs, it's just a matter of how we approach it for the most part. Yeah, like right. paintbrush is just different on the. On this album, it's much more, we added rock and roll back into it, but it's always been there if you listen to the other songs. We just didn't have the electric guitar or the drums on it, but it's still it's the same feeling. So. And we played places like um, Eddie's Attic and the um, Bluebirds. They, people wanted to buy stuff that represented what we were just doing, or it used to do other stuff. So. Okay. Now, um, tell me a little bit about you, Sherry. How how did you get into the music um, in your beginnings? My beginning started when I was 11 years old. Um, in sixth grade, our, I went to Catholic school, and I then we all talked about how the music in church was kind of boring and in a key that nobody could sing, and so she said, well, let's learn to play guitar and play some songs. And so we started doing folk masses in our church every Sunday, and that's how I got started in music. Okay. Now, yeah. let's talk a little bit about the, the new release. Uh, when you were putting it together, what was the inspiration that brought this new release into existence? Well, I've, I've been writing a lot over the last few years. And... Um, we we put I guess we put twenty songs down for the, song, the album going the distance, which was before this, and that remained acoustic. And then I had these songs that felt like they needed a more rock and roll edge, and we and I took them to a producer. But we took like forty songs in the um, between the pandemic and now, and while well, it's even more because we're in the middle of recording a new acoustic album with them. So. Okay, now. Um Let's talk a little bit about you guys as songwriters, uh, because you know every songwriter has their their process, their way of tapping into the muse and getting things rolling. When you guys sit down to begin the writing process, what do you do? What what is your mechanism that allows you to tap into the muse? Well, first of all, I write every day. I do most of the writing. Sherry has written a couple of things with me but for the most part and I write every day so that when the music comes I'm ready to do something with it um, if that makes sense to you it's a, it's a toolbox I have and, and if I'm not using it I'm a little rusty when they come in and it takes a while and it's still the best songs are always the inspiration ones for it. but I'm more ready when I write every day and that's my process if I have a lot of different things one of the things I've been doing lately is writing with my younger self um, I have uh, lots of pieces of songs um, uh, orphan lyrics is what I call them <laughs> and I go through them now I feel like I've reached an age where i got to decide what to do with these just throw them out or 
or work on them. And that's where a lot of the songs have come from. They've come from things in my past that I had an idea. And it's, that's often where I go just to start. Even if I don't finish that song, it gets me started right and in the process of doing that. I like Jim's comment when he said to me, yeah, my, my young Jim doesn't argue with my older yeah. Jim, so I get a lot more done. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, um, as a songwriter, you know, a, a lot of writers today have... As, really embrace some of the technology as tools in their toolbox and you had mentioned you had your own specific toolbox uh, that you like to use when you sit down and write and you know some of that technology is like your cell phone for capturing ideas or even a home recording studio to, to lay out structure what are some of the tools you have found to be indispensable to you as a writer well, the cell phone would be it, except I don't use the cell. But it, it would work because it can go with, anywhere with you. I have a pocket track, it's a little Sony um, recorder that that gets me great recordings. But I I just put it down and record live, and that's all. That's all I mostly do at home. I don't try to work everything out because we have a great studio and a great producer that we go in and work with. Ron Flynn is really tremendous and he hears my ideas and so I like to keep them as open as I can before I go in because we might go um, in a different direction than I had in mind when we get there. Okay. Now, one of the big buzzwords that you know we're all kind of struggling with now in the in the music industry is uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, it really came to the forefront during the SAG-AFTRA st- uh, strike, where you know they were concerned right. about people, um, you know, digitizing images of people and utilize them instead of extras. Um, you know, um, digitizing actors and voices. Uh, but for the songwriter, there are tools out there, you know, that help you write lyrics, that help you write melodies, that help you write chord progressions. Um, and it's, you know... I haven't really used Yeah. But where do you think AI is going to take us in the future? Do you have any idea what it's going to do or how it's going to affect the music well, I industry? Think it can help. Uh, no, I don't really. I haven't thought enough about it because it, it doesn't really affect my process at this point. I think it's something, it, if I were younger, I might spend a lot more time with it, but maybe not. I, um, I, there's something, I think it's better. Um, I, I do the same processes that with AI. I, when I do it with other writers and things like that. There's so much that you can do within before you ever have to touch the artificial part of artificial intelligence. Um, and that's what I do. Okay. Um, now, uh, let me ask you this. Um, when you get to the point where you need to take and and have the song move to its next phase of life, going from the writing phase into the production phase, you know, when you give it to the band or the, or the producer... What do you do to determine when a song is ready to move to that next stage of life? You know, that's a good question. I, I play them a lot when I feel when I feel comfortable with the song, um, and when I feel like I've gotten the lyrics all shaken down because that's that's important. I have that together. I think before I get in, though I have made changes to the studio, I just do not, um, and so I have that together. Um, 
It's almost like you and Ryan get together. Yeah. Three of us sit there and Tim will play it and then Ryan will pick up his guitar and then start it. playing and sometimes there's little things he adds and, and it's different and he says to Jim, no Jim, you're playing it. I'm just yeah. pulling it out further out. Yeah, he's good. He's just a really good musician and he carries my stuff really well. So. And it grows on its own, yeah. I guess, in a way. It's real organic. When you have people like Rich Brotherton and um, we don't do much with arrangements because people like Rich Brotherton with Robert O'Keefe's guitarist and Rich is a, just a wonderful player and we just rather have him doing um, on his own and think, and listening to the song and singing, well, this is what I hear. Um, on this record, it's Cordy Lavery we're using and um, one of the things that Ron did was put together this because it's a band album. He put together a band, but they are my band. Ron will play bass, but they, they are the band and Cordy Lavery came in on that basis, and she's a tremendous guitarist. I, I really like the some of the rough edges that she makes on to it, or what I really like, but she can also be very sweet in her playing. And I love Electric 12 string. I'm a Birds fan forever, so um, I guess that answered your question, sort of. <laughs> Okay. Now, um, let's talk about going into the studio, because having this song is, is half the battle. Uh, right. The other half, of course, is creating its um, its vibe, its, its um, identity, its sound. Absolutely. And every artist yeah. has their way of... Um, finding that 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 sound and, and getting it in the studio environment. What is your process in the studio that helps you find your sound? Jim, you know, I'm always feeling like the answer to that question is already there. Jim walks in with that song, even if it's a skeleton of, oh, yeah. of the music part. I took in a, it's all right in front of I you. took in a song and dropped into it which is one of my favorites and I um I wasn't sure with the finished song even and I played it for him and I said I'm not sure what we're going to do with this and Ron said we're going to record it that's what we're going to do <laughs> and so, so we have a lot He ha- he's a really good sounding board for me uh, and then I have as you see I, I go on this record I think there's five uh, different songs that are co-written um, and some of that is like an editor and sometimes we came up with the song together and worked together my favorite process of writing with someone is where someone like a Jeff Helmage and I will just sit around and talk until one of us says, what did you say? And reaches for a pen and paper. And so process, when I'm writing with someone else, that's often how that works. Um, And in the studio, Ron just gets the right people. We've had, we've played with most of these people since 2008 on our acoustic albums. So they're, they're, they're familiar with us, they're familiar with each other. It's a it might as well be a band, and they have played out as a band with us. Um, but that's a lot of it is, is opening it up for them. We give them ideas that we'll say no too much or too little or something, but for the most part, they, these guys, the people we work with are really good, and they're really capable of figuring that out for themselves, and doing that together gives you a, a sound that's not just my sound. It makes it a larger band sound. And that's how we do it. Okay. Now, uh, tell me a little bit about the lineup on this. Who else besides you guys are playing on this? Okay, Cordy Lambert is the guitarist. She plays with a bunch of bands, and Mary, she has her own. That's one called Utley Three that, that got into South by Southwest last year. And she's um, been a friend of ours for some time. Um, 
And one reason we brought her in, she, she is a big 12-string player. She also has a high boy that she can use to replace or replicate what Betty Sue does um, on the record. Um, Betty Sue, not <laughs> yeah. Um, Betty Sue is singing on the record. And I don't know if you know Betty Sue, but she's wonderful uh, as both as a singer and as a writer and everything. As a person. And as a person. And she came in because Sherry has had vocal problems. In 2019, we were on the road, and on the first show on the road, she walked up to me and said, I can't sing. And I said, what do you mean you can't sing? And she said, I can't sing. So we had to switch. That's why I'm still singing all the leads on record. Um, so that's beginning to change. She's taking allergy drops. Uh, and she'll be taking them. She will take them for three years, and hopefully at the end of that time she'll be okay. She's better now, and she and her older voice has really developed. But Betty Sue is on the album as our friend because she knows what I, we sound like and, and helps us sound that way. Um, she and Sherry should keep singing with us regardless. Right. <laughs> and then the and then Rob Flynn is on bass and keyboard, and um, and I play the acoustic guitar too. He plays a little bit of everything. Um, and he also sings, and and Steve McCarthy plays the drums. That's the first time we actually met Steve, but it worked out really well. Um, we hit it off. Uh, we started talking about old Kink songs where we clicked on it, and he he just fit right in with the with the group. So that's the people on this record. The only other Eric Hightsoft plays on one song, which is great on. Okay, now. Um of course, once you get this recorder, you have to get it out to, you know, the press and the radio. And you're working with Adam Dawson from uh, Jukebox Media, Broken Jukebox Media. Okay. Right. Uh, tell me a little bit about that relationship. Well, Adam's a friend first. He, um, we're just friends. We like hanging out together. And he likes what I do, and he likes to tell people about it. And so I, we put it into a page situation where he's doing that because he's doing it anyway. Um, we're just good friends. We, we like the same kinds of music. We're, um, um, most of the people on his roster are people who are friends of mine or people yeah. we, we really like their music, if not. Um, and Adam does a great job. He's very low-key about how he does it. He does a great job of getting us reviews, and we'll see the radio. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about the music industry. Um, I think a lot of musicians, um, their goals are different. Uh, how would you define success as an artist for you guys? What is what is your definition of success? Well, that's difficult. Um, I, for instance, I, I consider myself lucky that I didn't have the kind of success that I thought I wanted to have. Because anybody I know who's even mildly famous doesn't like it a bit. Now, I still want everybody to listen to my songs. <laughs> but as far as actually wanting fame, it, it's a little scary. Um, I don't know. How do you measure success? Different places you've been able to play? Well, different people you've played people with? Played by certain reviews we've gotten that meant a lot to us. Um, 
by um, just hearing myself on the radio is a good thing. Being able to make records and to work with the, the kind of players that we play with at Austin, they're just amazing players, and it's, it's a gift for us to be able to work with them. It would be nice if you could add a financial money thing yeah. and all this yeah. stuff, but you know, in the long run, I think a lot of it is the community that we build, that we're a part of, yeah. and, um, you know, there are different measures of success. Jim has a song about that called Fortunate Man. I mean, how do you measure exactly? Um, I think it's a whole combination. You know, the guy Clark line, um, where he says, um, just to make sure I can quote it right now. Um, I'm looking at you. Um, I know. <laughs> the, there ain't no money in poetry, and that's what keeps the poets free. And I think that for a lot of the best songwriting that's going on in the country, nobody really knows about it. It's sort of hidden. But it's out there and there's still people yeah. doing it and those people are successful if, if you follow that artistic dream as far as you can I think that's a, I think you're a success if you do that um, John Prine told my friend Claudia Nygaard she was really successful <laughs> because she plays her own music and moves around the country and you can do that and that's, um, I, I think John's right she's very much a success in my world yes he was does, that, does this all make sense to you? yeah oh yeah most definitely now, um, let's talk I mean, don't, about don't that. Get me wrong. We would have liked to have had more money come back with it, but I'm not sure it would have done any good. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. everybody wants a little bit more, yeah. Well, um, of course. You know, when it comes to the to the financial aspects of it, I mean, you know, we're in a position now where the consumer has really embraced streaming as a way to consume music. Uh, the problem with that is it's kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, you have access to this huge potential market that's, that's out there, but the streaming services are not paying artists uh, properly. No. Um, no, although to be honest, they pay as well as radio ever radio pay for you because yeah, radio would just to a certain point, yeah. I think, paid, so. yeah, I think ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC, the you know the performing rights societies, really uh, have not kept up with the times. Um, yeah, you know, uh, you know they're still collecting monies for music that are performed in clubs, but yet don't sample the clubs to pay the artists where the money's right. you know where the you know the music yeah. that is actually being performed. It's you they're know it's taking care of the Bruce Springsteen's and the people like right. That. They're, they're getting you know the people at the top of the right. echelon yeah, but the thing with, right. with with streaming is is that now consumers have shifted their perception of recorded mm-hmm. music from a product to a service they don't want to yeah. buy music anymore it's now something that they rent um you know for 10 or 15 dollars sure. you have access to pretty much everything that's been recorded in the last hundred years and you know even me as a guy of a certain age who has purchased their music on vinyl uh, has purchased it on 8-track, then cassette, then CDs, then downloads Um, this is an economic boom for me uh, where I can listen to anything I want to but how has this shift in perception affected you as an artist? I know a lot of our peers, there's a real issue about it, some of them are really Upset about it, I think the yeah. streaming because oh, they don't. You're talking about musicians, yeah, the musicians. Are, but but yeah. as far as but, us, but the but people in general. Well, most people are downloading. I mean, it, it is what, the one thing that when Sherry was saying that a lot of our peers are unhappy with Spotify and things like that. They have 
face the fact that that's the way people are listening now. And that is a great thing, what you said, it's a great thing for consumers. And it's not a great thing for artists necessarily, but it is a great thing for consumers. I would just like for them to be fair about it, and they don't tend to be. Um, But that's that's been the music business. Artists are always at the bottom. But Um, since that's how people listen, if you don't put your stuff out there, you don't have a chance to be heard yet. And, I, I, and the positive thing is that my stuff, the stuff we did with Edge City is out there. Yeah. My stuff is all out there if somebody wants to check and, and come back and listen and put it together because I think I have a body of work worth listening to. And people can do that now. And so that's what I see as the positive of it. Obviously, the fact that people aren't buying CDs as much is a problem. But that's, that's been a problem for a long time. Yeah. Um, CDs, we have we make CDs for two reasons. One is because there are a lot of older DJs who that's what they want. And two, at shows, they are souvenirs for someone to take home from a show. Um, but we don't sell much otherwise. Oh, and that's their business cards. Mm-hmm. There's big business cards we have to give out. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, if you really look at it, I mean, CDs... It it they're about ready to go. Um, yeah, you yeah. can't buy a you can't get a CD player in your car. You can't buy one in your yeah. computer. Um, you can't go to Best Buy. I mean, you pretty much have to go to a thrift store now to find a CD player. Uh, and, you know that's the reality of it. Um, yeah, and the problem, like you had said, with um, with streaming is the fact that they're, this is not sustainable as a business no, model. No. We can't continue to give um, content to these streaming services and not be compensated fairly for that that work. You know, That's right. the way it's situated now is that there is no way that an independent artist can go into a studio, record a project, put it up on these streaming platforms, and even hope, even if they had a hit, hope that they would even break even so on the project. Is this a legislative issue now that we're looking at? I don't think it's legislative. I think what it is is that um, if you look at the digital revolution in a timeline... The one thing that is glaring about it is that every five years or so, the company that we thought was going to dominate the industry forever gets um, replaced. Right. LimeWire was replaced by Napster. Napster was replaced by Apple and iTunes. iTunes was replaced by Spotify. So we know that there is something going to come down the pike that's going to replace Spotify. The thing is, are we going to get a seat at the table when this transition happens? Now, one of the things... Yeah, one of the things that I'm watching and I'm finding very interesting is the streaming platforms that have been developed utilizing the blockchain, which is the software technology that cryptocurrency uses. And one of the advantages of this new uh, streaming service is the fact that it is decentralized. In other words, no company or person can own the streaming service. 
You know what I mean? The, yeah, yeah. Um, the guy who owns Spotify, I think the, the article that I read is that he's worth $4 billion. Now, that $4 billion came from us. Our yeah, content. Right. He's more, he has more money than Paul McCartney. There's yeah, a problem you, there. Are, yes, there is. There is a problem. Is a problem. So I guess that's why I said this is a legislative issue. <laughs> right. No. I so the I one not. of the things that that um, that this new service provides, since it is decentralized, there's no corporation making you know mega profits off of it because of the fact it is owned by the the fans and by the artists who put up their content they can pay up to 80% of the incoming revenue directly back to the artist so that is a huge difference that is huge we had uh, we had a song on the day of this world we got over 20,000 plays and I think I got $7 for it you know right. but it's because it depends on when they when they measure it, what time, you know, are you during a sleep period or whatever. And, you know, it's very frustrating, though, to see that number of plays and and not much coming in from it. It used to be that if you, when we moved here, but that was a long time ago, but you could you could sell a thousand CDs. And if you sold a thousand CDs at $15, that about paid for your record and your promotion, and then you could make another one. I mean, it's not a profit-making thing, but it, at least you could do that. And I don't think that's possible now. I think you have to have already had some... You have to be well-known for some reason. I mean, if you've been on a major label and flopped, you still can have lots of people who know who you are that don't know who you are otherwise. Right. Um, well, see, that's that's one of the beauty of these of this new technology that I'm watching. Yeah. Um is this whole revenue stream thing. I, uh, one of these other sites, like the, the streaming sites that I'm looking at are like Audius and Emanate and Audiolux. Uh, but there is another site called Royal.io. Now, this is interesting, especially to you guys as songwriters, um, is that this site allows you to create these non-fungible tokens that represent a small portion of your streaming or your publishing royalties and you can sell these to your fans now one of the rap artists did this and of course you know he's got a, a big following and he can ask for the big money but he's he took two songs off his last release and he made enough of these NFTs to cover one half of the two songs, each one. And he sold them to his fan base, was able to generate almost $600,000 in upfront income. In addition, he had almost 3,000 fans that now had an economic interest in making sure his music is streamed. It's like like selling stock in a song. Gotcha. Huh. That's an idea. I have to think about that. That sounds good. Yeah, it's, it's very Royal. interesting. Dot .io. Oh, dot .io, sorry. Yeah, sorry. it's royal.io. We'll check it out. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, now, this whole world of social media and content was big before the pandemic, but when the pandemic hit, it really accelerated this whole concept of 
creating content and using social media to create kind of a funnel marketing system where you would bring in this wide swath of people into your top of your funnel and distill them down into fans and uh you know a lot of artists started you know they started doing live streams when the pandemic hit and then as the months turned into years those live streams turned into you know content that was more personal where they were showing their hobbies and their activities while on 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 the lockdown or they were showing their family their pets their um you know their their barnyard animals whatever it may be and it became a new branding opportunity where the fans really kind of um gravitated to this because they were very acclimated to this raw authenticity content almost like a reality show and like getting so, to know people a little personally right right, right. they get, kind of felt right. personal what are yeah. some of the things you guys are doing to kind of utilize content in social media to get the word out on this new release and to promote you guys as a brand well, a lot of that's what Adam's doing, and I, and I only kind of know. I mean, he keeps me in it, but he also knows that I, the artist side of me wants to know only a little bit. Um, <laughs> okay. I don't want to be thinking about it when I'm making art. That's right. all, when I'm trying to, trying to make art. Um, but so. it's almost like a distraction when you think about the business part and the promo <clears throat> part and the social media stuff we, we put. I just put out an event, which was that we have a new album out, and so and that did sell a few CDs. Um, and I'll, I'll do. We mostly do Facebook. We probably should do Instagram, but I don't really know enough about it. We don't take enough pictures. Instagrams mostly photos. Yes, you would just send photos of like shows we just did or places that we're locally going. And we and we do post lots of pictures, especially lots of pictures of fans when they're at shows. That's one of the things that we do, and we. Make sure we tag as many as we can um, because that's when people get interested. And one thing we did learn, we have not done crowdfunding in the last couple of records, which is a, actually it's a weird thing. We didn't need to, so I didn't want to be asking for it. On the other hand, it, it's like you were saying, people own an economic interest. I found more interest from our fans when they were actually putting money in. So we have to rethink how to do that. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, you know, I I really appreciate you guys coming on the show. It's always a pleasure to have you on. And uh, thank you so much. Yeah, and uh, we're going to give everyone out there a double shot from your new release. You guys out there, you know what? Turn it up loud. The hell with the neighbors. We're going to have some fun tonight. That's right. Yeah. It's rock and roll. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to talk to you. As, as always. When this whole world starts spinning so fast, it's too much for me to take. When the walls start closing in, and I feel like my life's one big mistake. Look at you beside me Standing tall with the grace and power of the moon 
into the mirror I see my past and my future jumbled upside down And I try to run away But I get no further than the stoplight in my hometown You're waiting at the window When I come home full of regret for things I did not do something new When I don't believe in nothing When I don't believe in nothing When I don't believe in nothing Revival And it shook me to my bones I bought a big red Gibson I taught myself to play I thought I'd found a calling I swore that I'd obey Now I wonder where the time goes When I think about what might have been I just can't seem to let go That big red Gibson in my hands Big red Gibson I moved to Music City didn't work out like I'd planned I ran into some bad luck Well, that's the year I broke my hand And then I fell in love with Rita I moved back to Baltimore 
I was tired of being lonely I wasn't lonely anymore Now I wonder where the time goes And I think about what might have been I just can't seem to let go That big red Gibson in my hands Big red Gibson Started a new day job just to make it through the year Yesterday it was a stopgap Myself a tall one And I walk out in the yard I stare at the horizon I pick up my guitar Rita sits beside me I play a little song This one we both remember So Rita sings along Now I wonder where the time goes And I think about what might have been I just can't seem to let go That big red gives me in my hands Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Gonna 